0: Welcome back to Podcast Recovery, everyone. We're your hosts, David O. And Eric V. Today we are joined by our special guest, Kenny. How are you doing today, Kenny? I'm
1: doing wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan of what you guys are, are doing, so I'm happy to, to be on your podcast.
0: Thanks, man. I
1: appreciate it. Uh, where Where are you from, Kenny? I, I I'm from Seattle, Washington. Grew up here and, and live in
0: Seattle and... Got sober here and still here years later. Awesome. Um, when were you first introduced to recovery?
1: I was first introduced to recovery when I was um, still a really young guy, probably as early as fourteen, fifteen years old. I was in trouble with the law and got introduced to recovery that way, and mm-hmm. ended up coming back into recovery and. Uh, getting sober when
2: I was
0: 28 years old nice and uh, how long
1: have you been clean or sober I've been sober 30 years so my friday date is June 8th of
0: 1989 wow that's amazing as a, a, you I'm 32 eric's 32 I believe so you've been you've been sober pretty much our entire life
1: yeah that's that's the case I have uh, I have a, a daughter this 28 Never seen me drink, and I have a son who is adopted in my society and he's never seen me drink either. So,
0: awesome, what a blessing! All right, man. Well, with all that out of the way, we're gonna we're gonna turn it over to you to share your story with us. So, take it away.
1: Great. Well, my name is Kenny. I'm a, I'm an alcoholic. I've been in recovery for 30 years. Like we just said, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the podcast Recovery and saw you guys, David and Eric on Twitter, I think it's probably where I first found you guys, so I'm really grateful to be here, and I'll uh, just, uh, um, you know, I'd I just like to start by saying that, um, you know, I in the, in the I'm probably going to talk for 30 minutes or so, and during that time I'll tell a little bit of my story and try to give you a little bit of a feeling for some of the passion that I have about recovery and what it's done in my life. But I got yeah. sober, as I said, in, on June 8th in 1989. Um, I'd, uh, I came from an alcoholic home. I, I think sometimes that's important. It seems like a lot of people in recovery came from alcoholic homes or came from homes yeah. where there was worse or other problems, anger problems or violence in the family. Um yep. but it certainly isn't that way for everybody. I know that to be the case because my brother Jeff is is uh is not an alcoholic and he and I shared a bedroom when we were growing up. But mm-hmm. I grew up in a home where my mother was an alcoholic and she's sober now, and my uh and my stepfather who raised me and, and who I grew up with is the man in my life, who died on the streets of Seattle homeless as uh, an alcoholic and Jeez. so i I knew from the time I was young that um, you know that I, I'd been I'd, alcoholism was not uh, was not anything I wasn't aware of I just was aware of how unusual it was for the the type of drinking and drugs that were going on in my own family mm-hmm. and one of the for instance is when I was a young kid you know we we moved a lot because of that and I Went to a new high, new junior high school. in seventh grade, which was a really, you know, pretty intensely uh, social kind of time in a person's life. And so the seventh yeah. grade was kind of my move from grammar school into junior high school, and mm-hmm. I took that move, and um, I was I was twelve years old. I was just about to turn thirteen, and and I was still wet in the bed. I was still, um, <clears throat> I, I, and so, and because, you know, my house was the party house and everybody from the bar came to my house after the bars closed and there was a lot of insanity and fights, The police were, you know, we were well known, my family, by the Seattle Police Department, which made regular visits and. And uh, so I would just wake up and have to get myself ready for school. I didn't know anything about personal hygiene or those kinds of things. And I would just try to towel dry myself off the best I could and try to dig through a pile of dirty clothes, trying to find the, the cleanest mm-hmm. of the dirty clothes and put that on. And they were clothes that didn't really fit that well. And so know, that's the condition I was going to school, and I had long hair. was popular then, and so I had really long, greasy hair, and and uh, the greasy part wasn't popular. But the, um, I stunk like urine, and 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 you know, one of the mm. one of the fun things I say is that, you know, my if you were to talk about the drug of choice, which is not my favorite thing, you know, my favorite term, I really believe that the drugs that got me into trouble were the drugs of no choice, which for me were alcohol, heroin, cocaine, and some, some others, but those were the drugs I didn't have any choice over, no matter how bad I wanted to stop, I couldn't. And, yeah. uh, if you were to use that term, a drug of choice, my first drug of choice was probably lack of oxygen to the brain, and so I was looking mm. for a way to help, you know, I would choke myself, and then I'd get this euphoria for a few minutes, and, uh, and I would kind of stagger around, so... You know, the, the the funny thing that I say is that, you know, my popularity waned a little bit in the seventh grade because I was this, you know, stinky kid that smelled like urine that uh, would stagger around, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, it was just a, and so, um, you know, when alcohol came my way and I really made the decision to start drinking, I was off to the races, and... Um, I've only ever met one other person. There was years I would tell my story and I would tell, one of the things that I would say is that I never knew another person that had this as a part of their story. And that was that that uh, that as a, a juvenile, you know, uh, I was probably about 15 or 16, I was court ordered to abuse because I was always drunk at school. I was drunk every time I was arrested. Wow. I went to and so I was would every day go to the pharmacist that was close to the house where I was living and and the pharmacist would give me a pill and I would take it and I'd have to open my mouth and show him that I'd swallowed the pill and I would sign a paper and he would sign it and off I would go but I spent most of my juvenile years in and out of institutions of one kind or another, foster homes and group homes and lockup institutions and I was in my first treatment center, if you could call it that, when when I was about 16 years old. I was uh, it was a lockdown facility, um, <clears throat> and locked down in cells. And uh, but there was it was the whole unit. the particular unit in this facility was a unit for juvenile drug offenders, and wow. and, uh, and I was there for a year, and I left, and you know none of that ever you know, just, I just, even during the times when I couldn't drink or drug, I was just obsessed with the idea of drinking and drugging, you know, and I had, I had some small modicums of success, you know, for a period of time, I, I had a grandfather that was in the fishing business in Alaska, um, he worked for a family that owned some boats, and, and he thought, well, we'll put him on a boat up to Alaska, and that'll straighten him out, you know. And so I, I finished mm-hmm. for quite a few years, which was really kind of a joke, but it actually worked. You know, I I got on these boats, and I just loved the guys I was working with. I loved their, uh, I loved their enthusiasm. They were older guys. I'd never been around people like that. They took an interest in me. They mentored me. Um, and there was, you know, a time where I just loved it, and I really excelled. Even though at that time, and I can you know I can say with this caveat that I, I I I you know when I once I was in sobriety, I've had a really great career in the in the seafood and fishing business and, and done really well, provided for my family, and I'm so grateful for that. But and it's much much better now than it was. You know, but in those days it was just completely the wild, wild west. There was no drug testing. There was no Coast Guard, hardly zero Coast Guard enforcement for drugs and alcohol. They just looked the other way, like, hey, they, you know, these are guys who are just uh, having some fun. And, but we would not just work hard. We would work hard. You know, we would just we're, we were just work hard, play hard, guys. We would work hard while. You know, we were playing hard while we were working, so we were doing a lot of drugs and drinking mm-hmm. while we were working and doing this really dangerous work, and we were just completely out of control. And even in that group, you know, there was there was there was an urgency about my drinking. There mm-hmm. was this 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 uh, um, this, this manner of drinking and using where i once i started i lost all control over amounts and i could not stop and so even among these other people these guys you know passed the basket and put me through treatment twice this family um and tried to help me and and this the last time i um, the last time I went to them was the day out of one day out of my second time these guys had put me through treatment, and I was asking for money on the next trip, and I was loaded already. And, and so they just said, "Hey, Kenny, until you get your act together, man, do not come around." And you know, we're done with you. And for the next three years, there's there's this you know idea that. You know, I knew I was, I knew that if I, I knew then even that if I, if I took a drink, I was, you know, it was curtains. I knew I had to stop. I knew for a fact that it wasn't, uh, um, I knew for a fact that, uh, I needed to reach out for help. I knew I couldn't do it on my own, all of those things. And then mm-hmm. I drank another three years. and. I ended up behind a McDonald's restaurant here in Seattle, and there was a, a restaurant and a little building with a bar uh, next to it called the Baronoff. and between the McDonald's and the Baronoff, there were two separate buildings, but there was a facade across the front of them, so it looked like one building from the front when you walked down the street, but if you went in behind, you could get between those two buildings, go through some bushes and get between those two buildings, and I set myself up a little cardboard lean through there and while I was while I was uh um you know I, I can't even say I was living there because I totally quit sleeping and I quit eating and um you know I was just that guy that was living only to drink that was it um, and, and do drugs. And I'd been doing IV drugs for, for many years up to that point, even back in the days when I was on the boats. You know, I would hide that from the other guys on the boats, but that's the, you know, one of the things that I would do to, in this this crazy attempt to try to overcome this obsession for more. Hmm. And that's really what it amounted to for me, was just this this, you know, I always... Um, You know, I would just get into this place where I just thought if I had the right combination and the right amount of of things in me at the right time and I could get just everything perfect, that um, if I could get to that place, I was going to be able to take a deep breath and from that place, I was convinced I would be able to stop. Like if I can just get Mm -hmm. in there, then I'm going to call for help and I'm going to be able to stop. And, mm. you know, a day turned into a week and a week turned into a month and a month turned into a year and a year turned into three years of just, mm. you know, I, I, I no longer was, was doing drugs, uh, for any kind of escape or for any kind of, uh, real euphoria. I wasn't doing it to try to fit in. I wasn't doing it to try to make friends or to. You know, get girls to talk to me, or go to shows, or listen to music, or any of that stuff. You know, all that partying stuff was completely gone, and the only reason I was continuing was because of this obsession I had for more. That mm-hmm. was that was it. That was the only thing that was th- that I had left in the end. Um, and you know, somehow I made it out from behind that McDonald's in that same parking lot, there was a, a sobriety fellowship that was that was meeting, and, mm-hmm. I, uh, and I knew that they had meetings there, and I had a friend that I knew from childhood that was going there, and he was staying sober, and I thought, well, maybe if I go over there, I was out of money, and I was at a place where I would get really, really sick when I stopped, and I was out of money. Yeah. And so I just thought, you know, and it's like one of those miracles. I think we get sober sometimes on days when we don't expect to get sober, when we're not trying to get sober, and Mm -hmm. I thought even and when we don't want to get sober. I thought even if I did want to get sober, which I don't, because it always had meant the same thing for me—just one more attempt and one more failure. But even if I did want to, I wouldn't be able to, and Mm -hmm. and it would just be just this this kind of lost cause and why even try but I did think that if I went there I might meet somebody that would take me into their house and nurse me through some withdrawals so I could try to find and get some you know, get some gain back because you know I just woke up every day or came through every day with the idea that that uh, you know what kind of tackle lies am I going to come up with today to try to get me out of this mess and Mhm. And so you know that was the beginning of my sobriety. That was June eighth of nineteen eighty nine and and I I had a, a guy come up to me, you know, something happened to me. I went to this the social hall and and I I just started the meeting ended and I didn't know what I was gonna do, my friend wasn't there and I just started crying in this meeting and it was just like that hollow cry just You know, there was like no emotions attached. It just felt like an empty shell inside, Mm -hmm. which is like so different than I feel today. You know, I just feel like full life and just, you know, love doing this kind of thing and love helping other people. And I sponsor, you know, I've had a chance to see a lot of other people make their beds and walk again. And I've been Mm -hmm. very active in that. But I just, you know, that meeting ended and I was there just you know, totally lost and you know, my family had tried to help me. My friends had tried to help me. Everybody tried to help me. And a complete stranger came up and said, listen, if you'd be willing to go to detox, we'll, we'd be happy to give you a ride. And a matter of fact, we already, we've already made a couple of calls and they got a bed waiting for you. Mm. And, you know, I just have been such a recipient of kindness um, in recovery, and people, you know, for no other reason than just this, you know, feeling of of uh, well being and in their own efforts to get sober, they were reaching their hand out to people who were still suffering and trying to stay sober themselves and. You know, I just feel so lucky I got sober, not just only when I got sober, with the guys that I got sober with and the Mm -hmm. people that were around me. That's really what it took. And I'm not a believer that anybody gets well in isolation, regardless of what particular program you go into, regardless of your belief or lack of belief. You know, it's that that is one of the keys to recovery is that, you know, we don't do this thing alone.
0: Yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, I just, I like to say I learned about giving from experts. You know, I had, um, I had, uh, you know, I got the same guy, Al, that dropped me off at detox. He picked me up, and um, after five days in the detox, he picked me up, and that's where I got my first five days of sobriety. Nice. And, you know, looking back on it, I just, and just, you know, it's overwhelming for me, too, even to think about, like, 30 years of sobriety, you know, that's like, uh, yeah. um, but, you know, more than half my life. I'm 58 years old now, and and uh, just, it's just, you know, such an incredible thing to me, and I'm just so grateful that, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 that that's what happened because, you know, I'm absolutely convinced that I should have, you know... I should've uh, died behind that McDonald's restaurant. You know, I was just completely out of my mind back there. You know, I was, I was close enough, my little camp out hiding spot was close enough to where I could still hear the loudspeaker from the people using the drive-through and they would say, you know, I need a number three supersize with a Diet Coke and I thought I heard them saying, hey, there's a freak back here shooting Coke. Somebody called the FBI. <laughs> You know that was the kind of that was the kind of <laughs> going on in my head, and yeah, you know, even after I got sober, you know, I mean, um, you know, there's there's, uh, um, you know, I can say that you know one of my favorite things is I was not too well at the time talking about being sober, being a year and a half or two years sober. Um, it took a long time for me to to come out of that. I just i I can remember sitting down. My my uh, Al who picked me up, you know, he was kind of my sponsor in sobriety, and and he owned a little car lot, and he, you know, I stayed in the back of the car lot. He had a little, uh, there was a bedroom back there and a little kitchen. You know, it was very comfortable, and it was, uh, you know, but it was it was in a part of Seattle right on highway 99 and and 82nd, uh, right in town. And it's just, you know, it's not a very good neighborhood now. It was not, I, mean, I think it was probably a worse neighborhood then, mm-hmm. uh, but it's still not a very nice area. Um, not a place you'd want to go at night and, um, unless you were like I was back then, but, uh, You know, but, you know, it's just, I just look back and I think, man, how did that possibly happen? You know, because I got sober and then not only did I get sober, but I, I stayed sober and, um, and I stayed sober right in the thick of everything. You know, every morning I'd walk up, there were syringes in the alley, right. Coming out the back door, which was where the, you know, my main entrance out of the, the little bedroom and stuff in the back. There was Mm -hmm. always stuff going on in the car lot at night. And I knew a lot of the people from that area. I just think, man, what a miracle it was that 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 happened. And Mm -hmm. I got, you know, I got, uh, um, you know, I got very, very vested in pursuing a spiritual way of life. And I really, to this day, you know, I look back on it and I think that's what made the difference for me was, was that I started pursuing a spiritual way of life, and you know, I went and did some of the things that were suggested. You know, I, 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 wrote an inventory, and you know, of all the people I'd had these resentments against, and and I looked at geez, where, where was I to blame? Where was, where was I at fault? What should I have done? <coughs> I went, you know, I, I, and I. I you know, did the 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 fifth step where we go and sit down with another human being and go through our life story from this place of here's all these resentments I had and, you know, I just all of this stuff I just found that I, you know, I've been wrong about everything in my entire life that you know, I was wrong about my mother I was wrong about my father, I was wrong about my brother and sister, I was wrong about my Seventh grade gym teacher. I was wrong about the Seattle police department. I was wrong about the Republicans. I was wrong about the Democrats, you know, just Mm -hmm. everything in that list. And, you know, these, it was like the dominoes just kind of started falling. And all of these, these, these core beliefs that I had just started falling apart. And, uh, and I really think, you know, that's the beginning for so many of us is, whether you want to call that, you know, the complete psychic change, which is like the idea that in our, in our minds, uh, you know, the psychic is like the way we think, like my way of thinking completely changed, or you want to call it a spiritual experience, or
2: you Mm -hmm. want to
1: call it kind of a moral psychological event. doesn't matter, but that's, you know, that this is what I attribute to pursuing the spiritual life and you know there's really a great psychiatrist a guy named Carl Jung, um, that was around back in the 1930s 20s and 30s mm-hmm. and you know he's still the kind of like one of the fathers of modern psychology most uh, counselors and psychologists would tell you they're youngest that that's what they teach yeah. in yep. psychology today and so he was really a Profound guy. He wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict, but he was incredibly interested. Just because he was a guy that really looked at these archetypes, what you know, and one of the archetypes that he was really interested in was this this alcoholic, this hopeless variety alcoholic mm-hmm. and drug. Addict. And what he's what he said was, you know, he called it spirit. This contra spiritum, which is which meant that that uh, you know we're drinking the spirits. And it's a proxy for the spiritual experience that, that he thought at the core of every, the core of every, uh, um, case of alcoholism and drug addiction at its foundation, at its very beginning was this yearning for the divine. That, that, mm-hmm. that the alcoholics and drug addicts are people that have this inner you know uh, um, you know this inner dwelling place that's not complete unless we find the spiritual life and without finding that the time and day will come and I will drink and and or drug again that that mm-hmm. uh, um that uh you know that was kinda one of his beliefs, and i've really I'm really a subscriber to that mm-hmm. um, and you know there's you know there's an analogy that i'll I'll use here, and the analogy is just like you know one of the things that you know that there's a lot of you know I think part of the spiritual life is like the you know that our intuition returns we, we get this this intuitive thought, these inspirations, some people call it the, you know, this vital sixth sense that we get this sense that's beyond our hearing and our taste and our touch and our eyesight and, um, you know, the five main senses that there, that that there's a sixth sense beyond that. People say like, it's like the mother's intuition, they call it, you know, or the women's intuition Mm -hmm. or the you know, that the kid comes into the house and the mom says, what's wrong? She can just sense, you know, something's wrong. And, and that, uh, um, you know, that's this innate part of us that gets to be awoken and that we are people that are, we're, you know, I, the best description I have is that I was walking around asleep dreaming that I was awake, mm-hmm. that that is where I was and now I'm awake. You know, as a Mm -hmm. result of doing some super simple spiritual things and being willing to grow on a regular basis that experience in my life, I found that I'm easily able now to stay sober. It's not even a, you know, I don't get up in the morning and pray, God, please help to keep me sober. Because Mm -hmm. I open my just there this gift is just there you know I think about a lot of other things but that's not one of them mm-hmm. um, and the analogy that I'll use on kind of this inspiration um, and then I'll wrap it up with this because I think we're just over we're, we're coming up pretty quick on the on the You're good. minute. I want to really You're anxious good. to get questions and answers but uh, the, uh, the 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 piece that I think about is you know that you know kind of where my imagination has been fired in this deal is that when I was I was homeless a little for just a short time before I got sober I usually had money to I usually had money to you know uh, I could drum up money and get a hotel mm-hmm. with some different people or you know I I had some game left up up until the end which I had no mm-hmm. game but mm-hmm. you know I had to get a girl to let me crash at their place for a while or some friend or, you know, I mean, and, uh, but when I was a kid, I was homeless quite a few times as a, as a teenager. And, and I can, and I was just, I was homeless just because it was better to walk the streets all night than it was to go home on certain nights where I had a bed and a room. And, um, because of what was going on there. But the the thing that, you know, there was a friend of mine and he had a garage and I used to go there and he, his parents, you I know, mean, he was a young kid, but his parents let him hang out in the garage and he'd set up a bedroom and everything out there for himself. Mm-hmm. And it was separate, the garage was separate from the house. I don't know what was going on with the parents at the time. I thought it was the coolest place in the world. Now I think, my God, what was going on with those parents. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, um. But the thing that, that uh, you know, I remember was just, it was just a cool place. You know, there he had music and huge speakers and girls would come over. He always had booze and we were always drinking. There was always pot. and You know, it was just wonderful. We had a really mean dog that would attack people. It was just like, mm-hmm. I just thought this was the thing in the world, you know. But, uh, and I used to walk around when I was homeless and I would see these clearly underutilized garages And I would think to myself, man, if I could ever have a garage, you know, all to my own, Mm -hmm. life would be wonderful. You know, that would be so great. And it wasn't even to be my garage. It was always just somebody else would let me stay in their garage. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that was like the best I could hope for in my life. And, you know, through staying sober and continuously being on a spiritual path and seeking deeper and deeper spiritual experiences, you know, my imagination was fired. And I, you know, once we lose this obsession to destroy ourselves with booze and drugs, um, you know, all kinds of remarkable things can happen in our life that, you know, once we, once, once that is removed, I found out, well, geez, I'm pretty good at business and and uh, and you know I didn't want to go fishing on the boats anymore, so I just started you know trying to to help where I could, and ended up in management, and then I ended up as a general manager of a company, and I moved to another company where I was president and CEO of a company, and and we had 300 people working for us. Wow. And uh, you know it was uh um so you know, and I thought about that some time years ago, I thought, man, you know, I was always looking for that garage, but I never saw the house. Mm. You know, I never saw like, I just, you know, it's like, that's become like this analogy for me is, is uh, this metaphor. You know, I never saw the house. I never saw the family or the family dog or the kids. I never saw the the yard nothing you know I just it was right there in front of me but I was so on the garage that I couldn't even see the rest of this so you know I ask myself all the time like well what is the garage today maybe all this that I've got now is just the garage and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I live in a very, very nice area of Seattle. I've got a beautiful view of the water. I mean, I've got I've had you know, I've been married for twenty three years. I have a daughter that that we raised together when we got married. She came Mm -hmm. to live with us. My daughter's twenty eight years old now and she's never seen me take a drink and we adopted a a young boy and brought him into our family and he's thirty two now, has never seen me take a drink and I've had this great career and now I'm just, you know, working at home as a consultant and and uh, I got more work than I can than I want and some days and so it's just you know, it's a beautiful life, man. I've I I've you know, been able to help my kids along the way and I've uh you know, since they very first told me When I was less than one year sober, I got this message that if you want to keep what you found, you got to give it away. And I had that experience of just getting a shiver up my spine a few times in early sobriety, just thinking, whoa, man, it's good to be alive. Yeah. And and I, I didn't want to lose that. And so, you know, from that day to this, I've never not been working with some new alcoholics. You know, there's constantly a flow of people here at my house. And with what's going on today, you know, with the virus, we're doing stuff by phone. And But, mm-hmm. I've, you know, I've always had new guys in my life and continue to carry the message. So that's over my 30 minutes. But, man, you guys, I'm telling you, David and Eric, you guys got something really special going. And I'm glad I could come and offer my support. Oh, man. Dude, that
0: was that was such an amazing uh, share man like he every time I would write down a question like a couple of minutes later you would answer the question I was like "Ah, damn so I, I had to like I had to keep like scribbling uh, trying to come trying to catch up with just like such a, a well rounded and just well uh, well versed uh, story of recovery man um, would you like to ask the first question Eric or would you like me to Go ahead, David. Okay, okay. Um, hmm. Uh, You you talked about in your story, um, sort of uh, like a lot of us get clean or we get sober on days that we we don't even mean to. And um, I'm of the belief that I, I don't think there is a wrong reason or a bad reason to get clean or sober. So I was, I, I, I want to know your take on that. Do you, do you believe there is, there can be a, is there no wrong reason to get clean or sober?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. This is, that was Eric that asked the question, right? David. David. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I have trouble telling your voice. apart. Yeah, David. I think that's, I. you know, that, that has to be right. I mean, you know, it's it's probably not wise to get sober in order to see if you can get your wife back or get your job back or those kind of things. I think that's why people say those kind of things. It's well-meaning. But mm-hmm. I think you're right. It can be misguided sometimes that whatever reason there is for you to get sober, so long as you find this willingness to be open-minded, um, and to begin, you know, to pursue, you know, in my thoughts, it helps to pursue the spiritual life and mm-hmm. know, to find somebody else that's been down that path that can take you through some of these steps. That's, you know, I, I, I just, I think there's probably a lot of people that came in with wrong motives and, and uh, and, and so I think, you know, whatever gets you sober. So I, I would
0: agree with that. I think you're entirely right, David. There is no, there is no wrong reason to get sober. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I got, I got clean and sober come, coming out of jail, and like honestly, my big, my big mindset at that point in time was, I don't want to go back to jail. It wasn't, I want to stay uh, clean and sober for the rest of my life. But it, it, it grew and it developed out of, I don't want to go back to jail. Like I don't, I don't want to live in and out of jail for the rest of my life. And now. Uh, eight years later, like I'm, I'm still here with a with a beautiful, growing, evolving recovery. Yeah, there you go.
2: What you got, Eric? So, it sounds like from you know where you are now, you have a, a fairly full life uh, between work and family and recovery, and. One of the things that I like to focus on is um, trying to, to the best of my ability, obtain balance. So how are you able to manage each aspect of your life without letting one of those aspects start to kind of take the wheel and lose focus of other responsibilities that are going on in in your day-to-day life?
1: Well, Eric, that's such a good question. You know, it's a real common question that people have. And, and uh, you know, I asked a real, uh, you know, a, a real wise man one time that same question. And, and he said, well, you know, trying to, um, you know, trying to find balance in your life sounds to me like, um, you know, I'm powerless over my addiction and here's how I'm going to manage my life. You know, and so I think we have to be a little careful with this. I think, you know, for me, you know, I, I do a lot of prayer. I do a lot of meditation. So I consider my plans for the day. At the end of the day, I do a nightly review where I look back on my day and think about things like, was I kind and loving to all? Do I owe anybody an apology? Those kinds of things. And I think when we're doing that, this this balance really comes organically. That, um, uh-huh. and it, I don't want to sound like I haven't. I don't understand the question somehow, or that I haven't done that myself because I've had periods in my sobriety where, where I was working until ten o'clock at night, and it did take a toll on my relationships, or the time that I could have spent with my kids, or or times when I when I just you know. Thought I was having uh, a big heart, but what really was happening was I was just taking on way too many responsibilities with new people and with with commitments and sober groups and that kind of thing mm-hmm. that that took a, a deal. But I find that when I'm really focused and in, in, in kind of letting the spirit guide me rather than trying to guide myself. I, I, that's, that's not a question. The things that I need to do, I find the time to do and time's available. And also, you know, we live in this delusion sometimes, like the night before, we'll be thinking, oh my God, I got this huge day tomorrow. How am I ever going to get through it? And -hmm. then we get up and we start working and we get through the day and we figure out, oh, that really wasn't too bad. I kind of got everything done. I needed to get done. And, you know, it wasn't, you know, I was kind of worried for nothing. And we're just great at that. We just will fall for that same trick over and over and over and over again. Mm So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's how I, I try to look at it. I try to look at it as, you know, when I'm doing the right things and I'm pursuing a spiritual life and I'm being thoughtful about what my next step is going to be throughout my day, the, I, I don't need to worry too much about balance.
2: Nice. Perfect.
0: All right, Eric. I I, I have uh, two questions that I, I want to ask back to back. Is that okay?
2: Sure, David. Sure. Thank you.
0: And thanks, buddy. Um, We're working <laughs> together. We're working together on this one.
1: Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it was good. To, it was good to get a question from Eric. That was good. I'd read a little thing on your internet site about Eric, and and I I saw that you know he had uh, the heroin and crack and stuff. And I thought, oh, this interview is going to go perfect. i got nothing to worry about. <laughs> I'm with my like-minded people here.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're right in our wheelhouse. Uh, All right. Okay. So, like, you, you, you talked a lot about um, really kind of addict thinking and addict behavior just sort of and a lot of those uh, mis- misconceptions or misinterpretations that we like find in recovery that we had in our early, earlier life while we were in active addiction. So how do you think our uh, misperception of our lives, how does that help accelerate our addiction? Well, I
1: think it's really simple. Um, I think it's really simple, David, that, you know, when, when, when we are, you know, we're, we're people who tend to be, and I think you know most psychiatrists and doctors and professionals that study this this problem of addiction, and they would agree with this: is that you know we are people who are selfish and self centered to the extreme. And mm-hmm. it's like you know the the metaphor that I have for that: it's like a three hundred and sixty degree mirror, it's this wraparound around mirror. Which means no matter what direction I turn and look at whatever problems I have in my life, it's always uh, what is How does this affect me? How is this? And so, wow. so long as we have that 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 viewpoint of ourselves, this you know. And some people say, you know, I'm I'm not much, but I'm all I think about, you know, or mm. um, that uh, that we're you know. Uh, egomaniacs with inferiority complex because you know I think yeah. both things are true we, we do seem to have this really negative self-talk when we come in and even well into our sobriety we'll just you know we'll have this craziness and we'll just be sitting around thinking that you know uh, I'm never going to amount to anything this isn't going to work out why am I doing this Oh, my wife's going to walk out the door any minute and and or I'm going to lose my job or my money's going to disappear all these this, this craziness that's just a waste of time thinking about that stuff but Hmm. uh, um, so you know I I hope that kind of gives you a little flavor for the the way I think about that
0: but yeah yeah definitely and um, the second part to that question is um, how how do we change that like that status quo of our mindset how do we change those really self deprecating uh, thoughts and emotions that we have about ourselves in recovery, and how do we really grow from there?
1: Yeah, that's, that's kind of a deeper question. And, you know, I, I don't want to get too deep with the answer, but I'll tell you this that, you know, that, that I have this belief that, you know, nobody else can say that I am for you. And what I mean by that is that, that, you know, we kind of know that is the foundation of people that have had any experience with 12-step recovery programs that, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, that that, uh, I am Kenny and I am an alcoholic. And Mm -hmm. all the things that that really means, like it doesn't do any good for some guy in a treatment intake to tell you, yeah, you're a low-stage chronic alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That that doesn't have the same effect as saying the I am. And yeah. so we need to take that a step further and be able to say that, you know, my name is Kenny and I am a loving child of God. My name mm-hmm. is Kenny and I am I am a worthwhile human being that cares mm-hmm. about other people. And, you know, that needs to become kind of this new set and and only through uh you know turning my will and my life over to God and writing an inventory and 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 doing a fifth step, you know, which is kind of admitting all of your faults, your shortcomings, your defects of character and, and mm-hmm. doing that with another human being where I really kinda of get hammered with this and I see that, oh my God, you know, like you know, I the only thing I've ever done is just is is worried about myself. You know, I thought it was my boss, but really I was stealing from the company I was a terrible mm-hmm. employee but in my mind I'm thinking oh man I'm the hardest worker here and I'm not getting treated right I'm, you know it's just all of these 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 things that, that we believe mm-hmm. and I can tell you it's, I think you know sometimes we gotta get used to the fact that we're not just gonna get well on a week from Thursday it's, it, we're yeah. gonna be in this process for a while and yeah and that that it takes this kind of prayer and meditation and and this awareness of I am. You know, nobody else can say that for you. It's got to come from, one, getting rid of all these old beliefs, and two, having some new set of concepts and beliefs um, start to be the driving forces in our lives.
2: Nice. Bye again. All right, so you were talking a little bit uh, about spirituality throughout your share, and one of the things that I've been, you know, it's it's a little bit of a taboo question, but I I've been trying to ask it to a few people because I think it is an important thing to um, discuss with with people in recovery is is kind of understanding what is your spirituality? What what do you consider Mm. your spirituality? How because not everyone subscribes to spirituality as a means to recovery. Mm -hmm. And I believe that definition evolves for everyone and it changes to meet the needs of the individual. So what what does your spirituality mean? And what does it mean like what does it mean to you and how do you quantify that?
1: well I think for me and you know it's a, it's a question I'm honestly you know when I'm when I'm working with people I'm reluctant to ask that because but I'll, I'll give you a you know if it's a legitimate question I want to give you a good answer and the answer for me personally is that you know I don't consider myself a religious person although I I um you know believe in kind of the the one religious philosophy that we're all headed, you know, if we all are taking a different path up the mountain, we're all gonna get to the summit, you know. So um, <laughs> but it doesn't really matter, you know, there's a lot of boats going to the destinations. So it's like pick a boat, get in it and and, and and go. We're all gonna arrive there. So that's for me, but the 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 really important thing in this idea of coming to believe, which is a part of so many of the 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 twelve step programs that um, this idea of coming to believe is you know that that we have to have some conception of a power greater than ourselves mm-hmm. and I think that's true to really be one of the driving forces that propels us through the the twelve step and it's one of those things I think it's the the the, the crown jewel of the the anonymous Group's Way of Life you know and it started with Alcoholics Anonymous that was the first book that was ever published you know back in the late 30s on the mm-hmm. on, on the first time the 12 steps were ever published and now it's been adopted by you know all kinds of programs and I'm acutely aware there's other things too that, that are not 12 step movements and I'm totally supportive of whatever works so I can only speak from my own experience but the um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's clear in there that, that one of the things we want to do is to build our own conception of God. So, you know, you can just look at some of these terms that are the word God, um, you know, it says, you know, one of the ideas that, that I think is this crown jewel is, is time, therefore we speak to you of God, we're always talking about your Conception of God. So even though the word mm-hmm. God comes by mouth, it always means what it means to you. So that's kind of like that's why I say I was I, I'm reluctant to answer that question sometimes because it doesn't matter. You know, you can't have a spiritual experience based on what my beliefs are. You gotta come to some idea. Some people come up with simple things like just good orderly direction, or they use the you mm-hmm. know a group of drunks, or or they use the group beings or, or this collective uh, you know the collective mind of a group of people that's trying to help them that they can rely on and for other people maybe they go on and they say geez I was raised a Catholic and I'm going to go back to the church of my childhood and and, uh, and that's where they find their spirituality mm. but the important thing is just to, to start somewhere and it doesn't matter how an a conception we have in the beginning—it's you know—it's a place to start. And once you once you find that place, you can't fail
0: on this path. Hmm. Nice. Do you want to ask? Uh, I, know, I got I got two in a row, Eric.
2: <laughs> you can do your two, and then I'll and then I'll do one. Go ahead, David.
0: Wait, no, no, no. Well, I I had really. Oh, I did 2 I'm just trying to keep the balance,
2: buddy. I know you can go. And then I'll okay. do it. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, hmm. All right. Um,
0: am I right in the assumption that you're an AA guy, Kenny? Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that, um, that's right. Yeah. Okay. We can, yeah. we can always tell from the language. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, Eric no, and I, I are both. That's, that's probably true. I think that's probably true. It's not hard <laughs> to tell. Um yeah there's just yeah. there's there's like little there's like little uh just phrases from from either fellowship that, that usually a dead tip off and after doing this we can uh, you guys no, I'm kidding. Um so Eric and I are are predominantly NA guys. So yeah. um and I like I've I've always kind of seen or felt in our area that there's Somewhat of a, a a rival like a sibling rivalry between the two main uh 12 step fellowships and i think and i believe i can speak for eric on this we we have podcast recovery we believe in a connectivity between all the fellowships so how can na and aa really um come together and 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 be more connective between the two and and more harmonious towards uh, just a greater uh recovery for everybody
1: yeah i i think it's happening now i mean i really think that um uh, the more people begin to have an understanding that what really was was started with the 12 step movement in the, mm-hmm. in the 30s is really a movement of anonymous groups, whether it's CA or NA or mm-hmm. Gamblers Anonymous or Sex Addicts or, um, uh, you know, it's really this this huge movement of millions of people in these anonymous groups. And that's why people, you know, there, there's, there's some people that have said, and this was out of a Time Magazine article some years ago, but they said that you know, it was kind of the turn of the century, and they were, you know, we were coming into the 21st century, and, Mm -hmm. but they said that, you know, it's, it's that uh, this anonymous group's way of life was likely the biggest, one of the single biggest movements of the 20th century, so it's a Mm -hmm. huge deal, but it encompasses everybody. I think, you know, there's there's, there's some old-timers probably in both programs that Mm -hmm. are holding a tight line, and and if those people either get a little more used to the fact that people are going to show up at meetings and and say things that might be some of these tip off words that you talk about from yeah. the other program and and not bother them, or they're going to talk about drugs, and, you know that that's going to be a more accepted, open thing. That mm-hmm. that's my hope because you know at its at its core, I think you know we're. We're really, especially where we're talking about addiction and alcoholism, addiction, substance mm-hmm. abuse, I should say, and alcoholism. Yeah, um, you know the, the 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 programs, and I we see that in my area quite a bit. Where we've got a lot of folks in my area that do both NA and mm-hmm. AA and CA, and they'll go mm-hmm. to MA meetings, or, and they they don't differentiate too much between the fellowships. They really try to broaden, and I think is that. Good. That movement's already begun, and I think we're going to continue to see more and more of that. And personally, I don't think we've got anything to fear of Absolutely. that happening. I don't. Th- I think it's going to only add to the program, not take away from anything.
0: Absolutely. Yep. What you got, Eric?
2: Uh, so I'll I'll go with one of our are uh, questions that we usually ask. Um, So throughout your recovery, you know, as the drugs and the alcohol, you put those down, other addictions or addictive tendencies or behaviors are going to manifest themselves in your life. So I'm curious, which addictive tendencies have you noticed or um, behaviors have you noticed that have uh, presented themselves throughout your recovery and how have you used recovery to then um, deter that behavior and to, you know, kind of put a lid on it, if you will. Um, So I kind of want to hear like how you've not only what, addictive tendencies you've realized have manifested, but also how did you go about dealing with them?
1: Yeah, I, you know, of course, you know, there's the the, the stuff that comes to mind or the things that I don't want to talk about. So that's probably the things that I should probably try to offer to the listeners, you know, that would be the most help. So, um, but you know, I had a real issue with, with, uh, um, with sex and mm-hmm. um and pornography, you know, and early in sobriety it just kinda took over and and
0: mm-hmm. it was really
1: tough. It was embarrassing because I was working with guys and I was kind of well thought of around the fellowships that I was going to and you know, there was a um there was a, a you know a, a real stigma that I thought I had attached to it in my mind. Mm-hmm. And But I had to seek some help for it. And I asked a few people around the program for some help. And, and I can tell you, you know, this, this, some of these the fellowships are great places to go for your problems with addiction um, uh, and substance abuse. But it might not be the best place to go for a problem uh, with sex. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, on my own, just got to a place where I was... I could see that if it continued, it was going to eventually, it could lead to, to to right back to using drugs again. And mm-hmm. I sought out some counseling and I went and saw a therapist and it was great because she knew nothing about, this lady knew nothing about the 12 steps at all. Had really had no, you know, oh. so it was good. I found somebody that wasn't going to just, because I told her, oh, I'm in the program, I'm doing this and I'm helping all these people and doing this and that. And uh, and she was like, well, that's all good, but that's not what we're here to talk about. You know, so it was great. I got right. somebody that could focus on, she just said to me, she said, listen, I'll, I'm gonna, I'll work with you, but you got to commit to two years because it's going to take about two years. You got some wires crossed here and it's going to take a couple of years to help uncross some of these wires. And And we had to go back and look at things like, you know, that, that this was a way that I nurtured myself as a young kid, you know, just, that was some, one of the only things I could find that brought any kind of a good feeling to me in, this, in some of the situations, so, you know, I always kind of related that with nurturing myself, and just these kind of wires that I just had completely backwards, and I spent two years, and I sent a lot of other people that I've met in the program that had these kind of problems, I sent them, said, here's a lady that'll help you out, and and uh, for years, I don't know if she's still around or not, but for years, I know that I'm, I'm guessing probably about 20, 25% of her clientele were people that I was sending her away because, but it, you know, it, it's helpful. So I say that first, you know, if you, if you have one of these things, you know, you may find that you need to seek some, some outside help and outside mm-hmm. help is always good anyway. You know, I've just yep. seen too many people, uh, use, uh, therapy and other professionals, um, you know, that that we just don't belittle a good doctor or psychiatrist. You know, we just don't. And then some of the other things I think are like uh, workaholic, workaholism, and, you know, that's something that I've had to deal with, you know. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard because it was one of those things that actually served me well in some respects, you know. It Mm -hmm. gave me some of these status things that people would say, oh, he's doing really good. But the fact was is that, you know, I would have... You know, I was got to a point where I was afraid I was gonna die of a heart attack at my desk one day, you know, so those those kind of things and uh um but you know, I hope that's helpful. Hope that's a good answer.
2: No, yeah. Oh yeah, those were perfect. I mean Go ahead, Eric. No, definitely. I I, I can relate to the workaholism and also I mean even the porn addiction, I I think that's a that's something that's not talked about enough. Um Yeah, because it's I, I feel like it's a taboo issue. But, you know, I've mm-hmm. I've definitely struggled with that, bef- like in the past. And I know a lot of other people who have as well. And it's something that, you know, I think because of the connotation that it holds, it's almost shameful. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not almost it, it feels shameful to talk about it. But, you know, mm-hmm. through doing through this process I, of like, you know, doing the podcast and talking to different people you know there really isn't anything wrong with talking about it and you know trying to become better with it and the more people we can help yep. to you know overcome issues that's that's really what matters
0: mm-hmm. yeah Eric, you just you, you nailed it that's exactly hit the nail on the head that's exactly what i was going to say like it, it needs yeah. to get talked about more and yeah I, and i just wanted to say thank you for act like being honest about that shit is it's difficult. A lot of people don't because like Eric said, they feel that shame. So I just want to say thank you for uh, touching on that subject. All right. I got one more question for you. All right. All right. All right. So I'm asking this question um, for both Eric and I, us being uh, the youngins in recovery, the the new generation of recovery and you're the, you're the sage, uh, predecessor. Uh, what advice can you give to us, uh, young guys in recovery to stay motivated and avoid complacency or, or, or just getting into a rut in recovery and staying, like I said, staying motivated and grateful for long-term recovery. What advice can you give us?
1: Yeah, that's a pretty easy one because the, you know there's one thing that kind of is paramount and and, and always floats to the surface. It's always at the top, and that is the idea of one addict working with another. Mm-hmm. That's that's the deal, you know. That is the one thing that I think trips people up, and there's you know there's there's a, a lot of um you know, there, there's that, you know, people kind of stop working with other people. They start and they get excited about it. And maybe they're working with a guy or two, or they're down at the mission trying to help, you know, whatever it is, but the, um, but that's, I think the the paramount thing that, that, you know, people have found in recovery, that is the most helpful. And then I'll just add one thing to that. And that's the, when people with a certain amount of time seem to have a good program, maybe they have got some time under their belt, um, time like you guys got or, or, or more, um, mm-hmm. and I've seen it with guys with 20 and 30 years, you know, they go back out, and you wonder, God, how could that be possible? He was so tuned in, or she was just a dynamo in the meeting, and she was all... Oh, mm-hmm you know, it didn't seem like she was doing everything right. And just next thing you know, she's nowhere to be found. And, you know, we hear the story that she died or that she's, you know, a total mess and, you know, she's lost her marriage and her job. and uh-huh. You know, and those kind of things, you know, I've had a chance to work over the years, I've had a chance to work with people like that. And when it, when it, when it comes to, when they come back and they're fortunate enough to come back and I'm fortunate Mm -hmm. to be able to sit down and say, what happened? It's always the same thing. Always. It's been the same thing. And it's that there was something going on in their life that they weren't being accountable to anybody for. Mm -hmm. There's some, there was some secret, like the stuff we just talked about. They were, they were stealing from work. They had, They'd run up their credit card debt, and they weren't telling anybody how much trouble they were in. They had, you know, they they were uh, um, they were cheating on their husband or their wife or their boyfriend. They were, um, you know, they there there was they, they had addiction to to sex stuff. They were out gambling at night, and they weren't telling anybody about it. It was like then that's this. This mask that we wear, the persona. I go into a meeting and I'm a person who's not really honest. I just have this persona that I'm portraying mm-hmm. as a good a member in good standing, and I'm not talking to anybody about these things. And so, um, with the guys that I've worked with over the years, we get together often and we talk about these things. We talk. Just yep. about yep. that. You know, it's not an A meeting or an N-A meeting or anything else. We sit down, we have dinner, and then when we're done with dinner, we have a little private room. We get to have people come service our dinner in and, and a restaurant, and then we close the doors, and we get down to the brass tacks about, okay, what is it that you need to be accountable for? What is it that's mm-hmm. going on in your life that you're not telling anybody? And in that group we also have another rule that nothing we talk about in that meeting is ever repeated outside of the meeting, even amongst yep. ourselves. So yep. once we're done with the meeting, at the end of the meeting, nobody would say, Hey, what'd you think about what Eric said? Or, Hey, how about what David said? What'd you think of that? Mm-hmm. We don't, we don't talk about it at all. Um, other than, you know, like sometimes with people, Hey, there's that thing I talked about. Can, can we talk about it together? And of course that's fine. But, um, so that's it. You know, that's, there's, that, that's some advice that I'd, I'd, I'd give you guys is, you know, work with others, work with others, keep doing what you're doing here because man, I'm telling you, you know, that you guys are taking technology and putting it to some really amazingly good use. And, and I think you're going to find that, uh, that things are really going to take off with your Um, with your recovery podcast. I think it's a great thing, and I I know there's more coming from looking at your website, so I'm anxious Mm -hmm. to continue to follow you guys, and I think there's some good stuff happening. So keep doing that, too.
0: Thank you, man. I appreciate it.
2: thanks. All right, Eric. All right, David, it's that time.
0: Is it that time?
2: Yeah, it's that time. Go ahead. To the Twitter! To the Twitter question! (laughs) What do we have tonight, Eric? Um... All right. So this is from uh, April uh, Ludgate or at okay underscore all right, and from April Ludgate. Awesome. So this is uh, this is a question for all of us. So Kenny, you'll answer mm-hmm. first, and then um, David, and then myself. And the question is, advice for non-family loved ones of addicts, such as close friends on how to be supportive things you can do to encourage them and what to say and not to say.
0: Ooh, that's a good one.
1: So I'm assuming April's question is asking about what we can do, you know, as people in recovery for the family members? Is that the way you guys are looking at this question? So
2: I think she's asking it more from she, or like I'm guessing she is a close friend of someone who's an addict. And what advice you can give to her to help her friend who is struggling with addiction. Okay. Yeah.
1: What advice she can give her friend who's struggling with addiction?
2: Yeah, and she's mm-hmm. and she's not an addict.
1: Mm-hmm. He's not okay. I got it. Well, I'm glad I clarified that because I had that I had that exactly backwards. So, um, so you know, I think um, you know if if she's willing, you know that there there's sometimes, unfortunately, and it's one of the hardest things to do because, of course, we love these people. Is we have to wait for this, you know, what I would call this lucid interval, which is if somebody is an addict and they're the type of addict and alcoholic that that we are, Mm -hmm. um, the the time is going to come. They're either going to lose a job or the husband's going to leave or the, um, you know, there's going to be some big upset in the family or worse, they get arrested, they're in the hospital, they overdose but that those are the times and sometimes we have to wait for those before we can be a maximum benefit and we can move move in when that when those things happen because you know there's this idea the more hopeless the better so when we catch them when they're in that hopeless state there's a much better chance they're going to listen to us and we can give them information on how to get in touch with NA how to get in touch with other programs mm-hmm. how to get in touch with um you know, how do you, uh, how do you, you know, turn them on to the Sober podcast so they can listen to a few stories of recovery. Those kinds of things are going to be incredibly helpful. And you can, you can, you can present some of that stuff now in advance, but if Mm -hmm. you reject, you know, we, we don't push. Yeah. This idea that the door to the soul opens inward. In other words, you know, people got to stop, you know, when you, if you're, Push a door that opens inward. If you push too hard, it just closes tighter and tighter, and then you can't be of any use when the time comes. So mm. that I hope that's helpful to her. And man, I'll I'll be thinking about it, about April's friend. I hope she finds your recovery.
0: Yeah. By the way, Eric, I think that's totally the title of this podcast. The door to the soul opens inward.
2: Uh, I think I'm going to go there with. We, I oh. I like the lucid uh, interval as well. I think that's, Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. There's that
0: See, this is what we need. We need, we need our sage predecessors to give (laughs) the, give us these little golden nuggets from time to time. All right. Um, so April, um, I kind of want to answer this two ways. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, answer it from like her friend in active addiction and in recovery. Um, so anybody who's listening out there who has a friend or a loved one, uh, in active addiction, um, the biggest thing is like, uh, Kenny said, like you can't push them. You can't really, uh, uh, tell them they're, they're an addict, they're a junkie, they're an alcoholic, just like Kenny said earlier in his share. Um, because that, that it, it doesn't do anything. Like it, it, you'll almost get, a a push back. You'll get the negative response to that. Um, The biggest thing is like, and I know it's tough for, for friends and family of, of, uh, active addicts because we, we do terrible things. We're not, we're not particularly being the best versions of ourselves. We hurt people. We steal from people. We like, we commit crimes. We do those things. Um, so like there's a fine line of, of tolerance, acceptance, and, um, then enabling, so like you, you, you have to look at your own behavior. Make sure you're not enabling this person, but you you have to come from a place of loving and understanding and compassion, and and uh, um, and and that's the that's the best avenue you you have towards uh, helping them find their path. Now, um, for somebody who's in recovery, so the, so to anybody who's listening friends and loved ones of someone who's already in recovery. Um, uh, basically again, like look at, look at what you're doing. Are you, are you drinking around them? Are you smoking around them? Are you, are you sort of triggering them? Um, so try to eliminate those sort of things, um, in the immediate, uh, environment around them. Um, and and just every once in a while, give them some positive feedback. Be like, "Hey, I'm really I'm really proud of what you're doing." If you see those changes, like just say something. Just Be like, "Hey, I really noticed. Like, you're 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 really getting your your, your things together." And, and like, I'm I'm proud of you. Da da. Um, and uh, it, again, compassion, support, uh, love. If 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 go to a meeting with them. Go check out a meeting. If it's your best friend and they're going to a meeting, go to a meeting with them. You know, offer that to them. Say, hey, hey, can I can I go with them? Like, even if you're not seeking recovery, go go with them so they know that you're an ally. You're you're in this fight with them, and that they know they can count on you. And even if they don't totally understand uh, why you're doing it, just yeah just be there show up for them just like they're showing up for their own recovery um because even if it's not um an an addict working with, with another addict it's it's another human being with another human being and that's how we grow
2: so i so when i was in when i was in active addiction oh i had a lot of friends who I guess we're addicts, but I also had a lot of friends who weren't addicts. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess, and you know, I I guess I'll, I'll take this back like from personal experience. And one relationship I was in before I gave recovery a real try um, the first time, um, you know, she, we were together for five years and she, was not an addict. She used drugs, um, but I would not consider her an addict. Um, but she was, you know, she tried to support me. She tried to encourage me. Um, but everything she did was, wasn't was right, I guess. And, and poss- possibly that could have been because I wasn't willing to hear it, right? Like, I don't think her intentions mm-hmm. were wrong. I think it was the way people were... Sometimes it's what – one thing I, that I like to tell people is you can say a lot more by listening sometimes. Um, yes. Because, you know, sometimes people just need to know that they're heard. And if you're telling yes. someone that, oh, man, look at what you did. You got, you know, you got arrested again. Like, but, you know, it's like, yeah, they they know that like they they yeah. know like you don't need to They're take aware. their yeah you don't need to take their inventory um and honestly yeah. the best way to the best way to be there for someone is to be there for them don't talk at them yeah don't you know even encouraging them like that encouraging them is kind of a double-edged sword um because if someone's not willing to hear a certain level of encouragement they might like take that as a slight like and, mm-hmm. I, and I know that probably sounds crazy because um, it's like well I'm you know I'm trying to help and it's like well you got to know when to help like how yeah. receptive are they going to be at that moment in time is this the right time to bring this up um, mm-hmm. you know being I guess being in recovery I, I have you know, I, I've, i like, dealt with a lot of people who are addicts or who have, like, you know, different mental health issues. And a lot of people in my life um, will ask, you know, oh, can you, can you help this person? And my, my answer always is I'm not going to be able to do anything unless they're able to – unless they're at a point where they want to help themselves. Until that moment yeah. comes, the only thing I can do is be there and – you know, show that I care. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I don't want to open the gate to saying something unless I know that they're willing to receive it. Because if I say it at the wrong time um, and they're not ready to hear it, that could be the words that, you know, prevent them from ever coming in. <clears throat>
0: yeah. Well said. I thought that was three very different takes on the, on the question. I think, I think we answered it all three of us in a very well-rounded appointed manner. Good job. We're, for we're a good trio, you guys. That was good. <laughs> yeah. All right, Kenny. Well, we're, we're coming to the end here, but we want to give you one last quick minute to talk directly to the listeners, whoever, whoever's struggling, looking to find that message of hope. What do you have to say for, to them?
1: Yeah. I hope this has been encouraging to you. I hope that, uh, um, that this has been helpful and, uh, you know, um, you know, my, my words of encouragement are, you know, make sure even in these tough times that the, the uh, even in these tough times, um, you know, there's so many meetings online and these zoom meetings and everybody's getting together, you know, to just, you know the, the 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 basics are still there. You know, like to get to meetings and find a sponsor, find somebody that's got what you want, and mm-hmm. is willing to meet with you on a regular basis and is willing to take you through the steps. You know, that's that's just so so important that you've got somebody in your life like that. And then the the accountable part. You know, if you've got some secrets and lurking notion that somehow you can stay sober and keep some certain secrets or you know and people have all kinds of stuff like that that just destroys them you know these things Mm -hmm. that that, uh, get in their heads that uh, you know I I, I took some painkillers when I broke my leg and I don't know and you know they don't talk to anybody about these kinds of things and so there's there's my last minute uh you know uh uh or preaching whatever you like to call it to the, mm. to the new women and the new men that are, are listening and thank you guys again for having me on your podcast of course and, um, and, and go ahead
2: oh, and, and Kenny where, where can uh, our listeners find you I, I know you have a book and um, you have other you know, things that you're, you're doing where can they find your book and anything else that you are doing around the internet
1: yeah I do a lot of writing and and it's not all on uh, recovery but it's all based you know I've got a book it's about recovery and uh, Awaken Giant Sleeping Spirit I appreciate you asking that question that book can be found on Amazon and you can also go to my webpage which is newthoughtlife.org or you can find me at uh, newthoughtlife at at Twitter Um, and I'm on Instagram and Facebook so you should be able to find me pretty easy but uh, newthoughtlife.org is my author's webpage, and you'll be able to see the book and other things that I've written and I'm just uh, coming up on finishing uh, my next book which isn't on recovery but it certainly is about the spiritual life and I think it's gonna really hit home especially for addicts and alcoholics and people suffering from our disease. Awesome. awesome.
0: All right, man. Well, we would like to thank Kenny for joining us this evening. Woo! Woo! Yeah! Thank you, guys. I'm feeling the snaps tonight.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, man. But All and right. Drake, thank you so much. As- absolutely. Here at Podcast Recovery, we are aiming to expand the scope of support for recovering addicts. Accessibility and convenience of helpful services is paramount to combating addiction. We work to bring the message of recovery to every addict wherever and whenever it is needed. We believe that a powerful voice of recovery should be obtainable, practical, and at the touch of a button. Every addict deserves to hear a message of hope, and podcast recovery is here to provide it. All right, everybody, thanks for joining us. Make sure you follow us on Instagram, Twitter facebook check out our website podcastrecovery.com and absolutely go to kenny's website newthoughtlife.org but most importantly everybody out there stay safe and stay clean